HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. That's something else that I think sharing might be able to provide is the space sometimes where we can engage with people that might pray to a different God or no God at all, love somebody from a different sex, speak a different language, and it disarms us in a way where we can engage with them. And this ties back to my kids because I really want to try to put them in spaces where they're able to engage with people that look different, talk different, think different from themselves. So they would be more predisposed, perhaps, to engage in some of these non-market-based relationships in a way that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable and always elbows out. That was Michael Carolan on the benefits of sharing food, a possible solution for surplus. We'll hear more from Michael shortly. Surplus is usually defined as what's left over when the demand or need of a population has been met. However, in the context of the food system, this definition leaves us with more leftovers than answers. What might be referred to as surplus food faces a core contradiction. While approximately 35% of the food supply in the U.S. goes to waste, about 50 million people nationwide are experiencing food insecurity. This number is increasing from previous years due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which begs the question, Is it possible to have a food surplus when the need for nourishment is only going up? This week, we rethink the meaning of surplus. We start off with a lesson on embracing the food-sharing economy. Then we walk through the process of upcycling leftover grain from breweries into crackers. We learn about eliminating surplus in dairy production as a response to COVID-19. Last but not least we look into examples of closed-loop manufacturing that turns surplus or waste into common household products. To listen to the full interviews featured in this week's episode, check out our show notes. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Sharing is caring. How many of us have heard this phrase as kids? No matter our age, it's a useful lesson, especially when dealing with a surplus of food. 
Could sharing be an answer to our waste woes? In this throwback episode of Feast Your Ears from December of 2018, host Harry Rosenblum discusses the food sharing economy with sociology professor Michael Carolan. Michael defines the food sharing economy as sharing that occurs at any point in the process of growing, processing, cooking, selling, and eating food. He's the author of the book, The Food Sharing Revolution, How Startups, Pop-Ups, and Co-Ops Are Changing the Way We Eat. I thought through the lens of food in particular, because food is one of those things we are comfortable in sharing in some respects. We have seed sharing um, networks, seed libraries, cooperatives, and so forth. And so I thought it'd be an interesting lens to really kind of unpack the sharing economy and talk about aspects of it that might be working, aspects of it that might not be working, so that we can glean from that an understanding of how we might want to facilitate a sharing economy in the future that actually generates well-being and what I talk about in the context of a food sovereignty. There's this talk about how we're, we're living in a moment where we're all kind of part of a political tribe. And one thing that really interests me around food is food seems to be something because we all need it for our survival, sometimes allows us to take those political tribal identities off for a moment and allow us to engage with people at a level that we otherwise wouldn't be engaging with them at because we all either want to eat good food or we want to learn about gardening or we want to learn how to pick asparagus or cook it. Michael believes that the power of sharing to bring different people together is catalyzed by community members who know their region best. Instead of prescribing a model of sharing that works for everyone everywhere, he emphasizes the importance of solutions designed with the needs of specific communities in mind. The truth of the matter is, is that our solutions have to be community-based, they have to be agroeconomically based, they have to be rooted to place for them to actually work. And so this is where I come in in, in my, my quest to try to tell stories about where I think people are, are innovating in really creative ways. And this kind of brought me to these collaborative arrangements uh, around the sharing economy, which are really doing things that bring about stories I don't think enough people have, have heard of, let alone thought about. You actually you grew up in a farming community, right, a, a small community in Iowa? I did, a small rural community, northeastern Iowa, a town of about 350 people. I myself was not a farmer. My father was raised on a farm. I spent my summers also producing fruits and primarily vegetables and, and selling them and giving them to community members. So it's something that's near and dear to me. I grew up in the 80s. I was born in 1974, and so I remember the 80s quite well, and of course the famous 80s farm crisis. I was struck by how the system seems to be working against these people who I knew, knew to be extremely hardworking individuals. Michael's experience observing how the food system was working against his community led him to consider what factors make a sharing economy thrive. I'm really concerned about you know, that, that aspect, the preconditions that make sharing possible to begin with. How do we make people even comfortable or want to engage in a, in a relationship that's non-market-based? How can we build community around these systems, these, these, these ecologies? Perhaps if we engage in some of these practices that I tease out as having societal benefits, and it, and it normalizes a, t a different type of worldview that's more based upon non-market relationships than exclusively commoditized market relationships. It may have a profound impact in how we think what good policy ought to look like and what a fair and just food system ought to look like as well. On the first anniversary of COVID-19 appearing in the U.S., this worldview may be more important than ever. 
In the past 12 months, many communities have taken steps to redistribute and repurpose what might be considered surplus. These initiatives are often grounded in non-market relationships and, as Michael encouraged, rooted to place. Our next stories explore examples of how to repurpose surplus to benefit both people and the planet. Waste is practically embedded in the business model of the food industry. In restaurants and grocery stores, throwing out perfectly good food is simply a part of the formula. As the number of craft breweries has risen in the United States, so too have that industry's issues with waste. Until recently, it was standard practice for breweries to counteract waste by giving or selling their used grain to the agriculture industry for use as feed or compost. But with the rise of small urban breweries cut off from farmers, some brewers have been forced to throw away their spent grain instead. On episode 422 of Cutting the Curd, host Jessica Kesselman spoke with Kyle Fiasconero about his company, Brewers Crackers, which focuses on reducing food waste in the craft brewing industry by upcycling leftover grain. Here's Kyle. So we take leftover, or in the industry they call it spent grain, from craft breweries. I bring them to my bakery, we process them, and instead of throwing away those grains, we turn them into crackers. Crackers haven't always been the focus of Kyle's career, but as a veteran line cook who went to culinary school and spent many years working in restaurants, he's always had an innate desire to understand how delicious foods and drinks are made. So I really learned about spent grain, or I really just learned about beer by drinking beer. <laughs> um, I was a cook. I was a line cook in restaurants, and we would go to breweries. And sometimes it would be slow in the brewery, and you look around, and you see bags and bags and bags stacked to the ceiling at a brewery. And, you know, as a young beer drinker, that's not necessarily your first goal is to learn how beer is made. But as a cook, you know, that's all you want to know. You want to know how everything is made. So I was lucky enough to just pick some brewers' brains and you know, they tell you, they say, oh, that's, uh, that's wheat, that's barley, that's rye. They say, oh, you know, you, we grind it, we put it in the beer, we make a mash, we boil it, and this and that. And it doesn't really all connect until one day I was riding my bike to work uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and I passed a brewery and there was a dumpster. I mean, it was a huge dumpster filled with spent grain. Right next to this brewery happened to be a Jewish bakery, and that Jewish bakery was cranking, and it smelled delicious. So I'm just thinking to myself, right in the work, I was like, wow, well, when someone just take that grain and make some bread with it, it would be crazy tasty bread. Um, and that was kind of the, the aha moment. That day, Kyle took some of the spent grain back to the restaurant where he was working and made his first upcycled cracker. So I just, geez, the first version was just water, spent grain, some butter, and salt. And that was it. That night, we put it on the menu uh, as like an appetizer with, we did a smoked carrot and a little bit of hard cheese. And that was like the charcuterie plate of the day. Um, and then I did it again, and I did it again, and I did it again, and I did it again. <laughs> um, and every restaurant I worked at after that, I had always made a spent grain cracker with the local brewery's grain. 
never thinking it would ever be a business. For Kyle, Brewers Crackers has always been more than just a business venture. It's a manifestation of his philosophy about food and food waste. While working at farm-to-table restaurants like Blue Hill at Stone Barns, it was ingrained in him that a good chef should always think outside the box in order to eliminate food waste. That's the only way to truly honor your ingredients. Breweries are just like really nice restaurants, but they don't make food. They make beer. Um, So craft breweries source super high-quality grain to make beer. Uh, They get barley, wheat, rye, oftentimes from local farmers uh, in the state, sometimes in the region. They source all these ingredients. They do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes, and then they throw it away. So to me, that was almost like throwing food in the garbage. The second I saw that, I just saw so many people's hard work just being thrown away. I mean, I saw the beer only being a part of its life. So that's really like the basis of Brewers Crackers is is finding something that someone doesn't see value in and turning into something that has an incredible value. To learn more about Kyle and Brewers Crackers, check out episode 422 of HRN's Cutting the Curd in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Reduce, reuse, recycle. When we think about ways to solve surplus issues, one of the most obvious solutions is to repurpose it into something new. We turn to Jenna Liute on episode 155 of Eating Matters as she interviews Amanda Weeks, CEO and co-founder of Ambrosia. Ambrosia is a closed-loop manufacturing company, another creative model for tackling the growing issue of food waste. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country. That's a very famous stat mm-hmm. by the UN that gets touted a lot. And it, it's just from the resources of growing it, from the land to the energy and the water, and then in the supply chain, getting it around, and then also the emissions that are generated when that waste then goes to landfill. Um, landfills are the third largest methane emitter in the U.S., and methane's really bad. Ambrosia uses a closed-loop manufacturing system to turn food waste into common products. Think of it as the difference between a line and a circle. 
In a typical supply chain, raw materials are used once to create products that have a finite lifespan. A closed-loop supply chain instead reuses the same materials over and over to reduce waste. It's upcycling on a larger scale. For us, uh, what it means is manufacturing products that are not only intended and designed to be circular, but that source its materials in a circular way. When I first started working on this, it was because there was a lack of processing technology for food waste at a meaningful scale to address all of the laws and regulations that were being passed across the country to divert food waste from landfill. And we ended up taking more of a manufacturing approach and departing from traditional sort of best practices in waste management by just not approaching it as a waste management solution at all, more so approaching it as food waste is, you know, made up of organic compounds and you then reclaim those compounds and use it in manufacturing as opposed to just, you know, creating gas from it or creating compost or something like that. Ambrosia applied this process to their first product that was launched last February, an all-purpose house cleaner made from food waste. I was looking for ways to process food waste to derive new ingredients and chemicals from food waste to isolate what already exists in food waste. A byproduct of our, um, you know, different process testing was this um, sort of like mix of water, organic acids and alcohol. Um, And so I looked at that and I was like, oh, I think I think we have a natural cleaner. Mm -hmm. And then we started testing it. So we sent it out to different labs um, to test its composition, make sure it was safe, make sure there wasn't anything else in there. Um, And then we started uh, working with different consumer products labs for efficacy testing, so to test that it actually could clean. Um, So we tested that over over the course of like two-ish years. Every single time we got the results back, uh, it exceeded my expectations. One of the questions I get a lot is, what does it smell like? Um, it smells good. It smells good. And it took us a while to figure out the right scent, but it's a very basic scent. It's three essential oils. Um, it's bergamot, peppermint, and... Lavender. Lavender. As they look into future projects, Ambrosia's big objective is to take in just about any food waste. It can change from day to day. So it's, you know, meat, bones, dairy, vegetables, you know, all all food waste. There are other types of processing technologies that need it to be consistent or it will throw their system out of whack or, you know, can't accept certain things. And so it was very important to us that we developed a process for mixed food waste, again, to actually provide a, a real waste solution. To hear more about the process of developing this cleaner and Ambrosia's journey as a startup, check out episode 155 of Eating Matters. Stay with us for our next story on how local organic sellers are addressing the issue of surplus production in the dairy industry. 3.7 million gallons. That's how much milk farmers dumped out every single day in May of 2020. Not all dairies are created equal, though. While larger operations have trashed millions of gallons of surplus, many smaller dairies have successfully met the demand of their local communities. In episode 329 of What Doesn't Kill You, 
Host Katie Kiefer lays bare the state of dairy in Pennsylvania with the help of Aaron Dulong. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those um, institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were were bare, um, the organic market stayed strong because the organic market didn't rely on institutional buyers as much as conventional milk. That's Aaron. He's the statewide lead education coordinator for the Parsons Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship. He also manages educational programs for PASA Sustainable Agriculture in eastern Pennsylvania. What we need to look at with coronavirus and COVID is how it spoke to the power of local food systems as not just like nice ideas, but actually uh, resilient strategies in the face of uh, disaster. The reason dairy prices are so in the in the dumper right now is because of the overproduction of milk, right? I mean, isn't that largely the culprit here is that you have people are have been encouraged to, be. to make too much milk. And then and there's no there's no like in Canada where they control the supply and demand. We don't seem to be able to <laughs> we can't we don't seem to be able to implement anything like that here. Um, so what what would you endorse as as something that would uh, potentially revive the industry, um, in addition to the programs that you are already, you know, essentially managing in Pennsylvania? The first thing I'll say is I think supply management's a good idea. And I think that a lot of dairy co-ops are doing it de facto. Land of Lakes has a quota system in place and they've had it in place for some time. Organic Valley has their farmers on quota at this point. That's basically supply management. The bigger truth here is that consumption of fluid milk has decreased since the 1970s. And I don't think anyone really sees that bouncing back. So we have to acknowledge changing diet. And part of it is the recognition of changing trends. So where is the demand? Where is the market growing? And, you know, the big the big dairy concerns often seem more concerned with growing markets rather than the, de- the declining U.S. market, which will benefit the 10,000 cow dairies, but will drive the smaller dairies that are serving a domestic population out of business. The issue of surplus within the dairy industry is not a direct result of the COVID crisis. But the thought of supermarket shelves sitting empty while producers poured out millions of gallons of milk per day brings to light an important question. Are we managing for uh, regional and local economic health, or are we managing for, for multinational markets? Historically, big dairy has prioritized big outputs. However, Pennsylvania's organic dairy farms have thrived despite the supply chain disruptions brought on by COVID. By selling directly to consumers and producing with an eye towards local markets, Pennsylvania's small-scale farms may lend a promising model to the future of local dairy. For more information, listen to episode 329 of What Doesn't Kill You. That wraps up our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Maya bernstein Shallot, Sasha Cohen, Tao V. Duong, and Cameron Berger. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast.
Meat and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meatand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. This is Lou Bank, and before I ever went on any agave road trips, I was taking daily trips on the G-Line from Manhattan to Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where I live with a couple of my Marvel Comics co-workers. Where we lived then is about four blocks from where Duke's Liquor Box is located now. Where was Duke's in 1989? We sure could have used it back then. Back then, you couldn't even find decent beer. But now, man, now if I were thirsty for something obscure, like, say, I don't know, a gin made with guava and passion fruit, I'd go to Duke's Liquor Box. Haitian bitters? You thirsty for Haitian forest bitters? Hey, go to Duke's. How about heirloom tomato eau de vie? I didn't even know what that was in the 1980s. But Duke's? Duke's has that. Duke's has small batch distilled gems like LA-1 whiskey, or if you want to drink like a druid, grab a bottle of their Glendalock Pot Still Irish Whiskey, aged in sustainably harvested 140-year-old Irish oak barrels and ex-bourbon barrels. Or, what's that you say? Does Duke's have agave spirits? Well, of course they do! Duke's Liquor Box prides itself on their selection of fine spirits and wines, so you'll find rare, delicious treasures like Cinco Sentidos Tobola, Tozba, Pechuga Mezcal, and Siembra Valle Ancestral Tequila Blanco. Duke's Liquor Box has everything you want, including a selection of New York spirits from their locals' only shelf. The only thing they don't have? That's a guy named Duke. So don't ask for Duke when you visit Duke's Liquor Box at 114 Franklin in the heart of Greenpoint. You can also shop online at Duke's Liquor Box. Dot com.